The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Morning, everybody. How's everybody doing today? Doing okay? Everybody happy? Good to go? My name's Shun Lee Fong. Um, I am, uh, well, everything that uh, Matt said, and uh, probably a little bit less than what he said, but I appreciate all the accolades. Uh, I've been here in LA for about 15 years, and I've been running the greenhouse. We'll talk a little bit about the greenhouse and what what that is uh, here in a little bit. Um, I've been going to church here for about maybe a year and a half, give or take, and I'm starting to get to know some of you guys, and that's been... Really good to have that opportunity. I'm still looking forward to meeting the rest of you. Um, my, like I said, my name is Shun Lee Fong. Um, if there's a slide with that, you can put that up just so you can see it. Um, as you can tell from my name, I am Irish. And um, I actually am a little Irish, uh, but mostly Chinese. Now, you could call me Shun if you want. Shun Lee is the actual name that I go by. And the reason for that is because I come from a very uh, we'll call that a prolific family. There are eight kids in my family, and um, they all have a Shun name. So my older sister is Shun C, and then I'm Shun Lee, and then it goes all the way down uh, to the youngest boy, who is Shun Nai. Uh, it's a very common thing to do uh, for Asian families, especially Chinese. They'll take the first part of the name, and then they'll apply it to all of the kids in the family. So if you have other people from my family here, and you say, hey, Sean, we will all pop up. We will look like meerkats going, yes. And so Sean Lee is is the way to go. Um, My dad, as as more and more kids were popping out, um, he started to have a hard time coming up with uh, further Sean names. He actually said to me at one point, he was like, I can't think of any more Sean names that don't sound like what I've already used. And I said, well, I, I can help you out with this. And because he, they were pregnant with my youngest brother. And uh, I said, I can, I can definitely help you out with this. You, you want a good, strong name, right? And uh, he said, absolutely. And I said, well, you'd like a good biblical name as well, correct? And he's like, absolutely. So I, I went to the Bible, and in Proverbs 3, verse 7, there is a verse that I think is very apropos for my family. And it says... Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. (laughs) And I said, Dad, this is the chance. You have got to name this child shun evil. (laughs) My dad did not take my suggestion at all. At all. Um, Shun Nye is now 22 and has been to church here, actually. So um, hopefully we'll get more of the Shuns out here and, and you'll get a chance to meet all of them. I, I, I want to, as I'm getting to know all of you here in the congregation, uh, I'd like to see how many people here, and if you could just raise your hand, um, if you are a vocational minister. Come on, Matt, raise it a little higher there. There you go. Okay, some vocational ministers have got... Three, four, we've got a few. Okay, great. Well, that's very interesting to see. That gives me a, a sense of who I'm talking to here. And um, maybe ch- we'll change over time this morning. So let's, um, let's pray first. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come together to uh, enjoy one another's company as we worship you. 
because it's all worship, Lord. It's all about you. Everything that we do is for your glory, Lord God. Um, we want to hear your voice. It's not about me. It's about what you have to say. So would you please speak through me? Would you please speak through one another as we talk to one another today, as we bless one another, as we worship together, Lord God? Would you make us a church for one another and for the worship of your name, Lord God? We just invite you to be present here. Speak to us, Lord God, because we're hearing. We're listening. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to um, start with uh, a passage out of the book of Exodus. And we're in chapter 3. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 3. And uh, we'll have a little bit of chapter 4. This is a really long passage, so I'm not going to read the whole thing because they only gave me 30 minutes to speak. And I can't even say my name in 30 minutes. So um, let me give you a little background here while you're turning to chapter 3. This is about a guy named Moses. Now, Moses was a tall, good-looking guy, looked a little bit like Charlton Heston, and um, he was a guy who grew up in the courts of Pharaoh of Egypt. And uh, he grew up in the palace. He was raised as a prince, even though he didn't really belong there. You guys have seen the various movies, so you kind of know what that looks like. And at one point, he was accused of killing an Egyptian. And Having been so accused, he fled into the wilderness, trying to keep away from the law. And he spends the next 40 years in the wilderness as a shepherd. So he's raised as a prince, and then all of a sudden he is out there tending sheep. He's got a stick, and he is just pushing the sheep around, and that is basically his existence. Not much to speak of, but at least he had gotten away from the law in Egypt. And then one day he sees this bush that is burning on Mount Horeb. And he decides to, being the curious type, he decides to go up and check out what is going on with this bush that is burning but is not consumed. So we have this miraculous thing happening here. And it turns out, and he didn't know this, it's going to be the turning point of his life. He didn't know it going in. All he was concerned about was, why is this bush burning but not being consumed? And as he gets up close to the bush, he hears the voice of God. Moses. And it sounded a lot like Charlton Heston as well for some reason. Actually, from the movie, Charlton Heston did the voice of God in that scene. But that's not how it really sounded, okay? It was the voice of God and... Moses was, um, well, we'll just say he was a little concerned because this is not the kind of thing that happens every day. It hasn't happened to me ever, okay? So, and if it has happened to you, I would like to talk to you about that. So we're at verse 11 here, um, and God is talking to him from the bush, and he tells Moses, okay, you've been doing this shepherding thing, and now what we're going to do is I'm going to turn you around, and I'm going to send you back to Egypt, where, the place where you grew up, and you're going to lead the people of God out of slavery. You guys all know this story, right? Everybody nod? Everybody good? All right, we're tracking. Okay, so in verse 11, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, God said, Certainly I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt you shall worship God at this mountain. 
Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Now, if that had happened to me, I probably would have gotten down on my knees and been very still and very quiet and said, yes, Lord, send me where thou willest. Because you've got to talk in the King James Version to God. If it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. So, Instead, Moses decides to argue with God and say, yeah, no, I'm not going to do this. I mean, who am I? What do I have going for me that you would use me to set free an entire group of people, thousands and thousands of people? And not only that, I'm going up against Pharaoh of Egypt. I'm going up against this guy. I'm not the guy to do this. In fact, you should probably send somebody else. And so he gets into this argument, and it goes on and on and on. And then we get to chapter 4, where it says, Then Moses said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? So Moses has run out of arguments against God, because God wins arguments. That's the way it works. If you've ever tried arguing with God, and I encourage you to try sometime, it's, it's a good exercise in humility. Then Moses said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? And he said, a staff. So here is Moses. He's having this incredible encounter with God. And I cannot go. I cannot do this. I'm not equipped. I stutter. I have all these things working against me. I have nothing that would, that would make you choose me to do your will. And God says, well, what do you have in your hand? And all Moses can say is, I got a stick. That's it. That's all he had. He had a stick. Now, what we find out later, and we won't go through all the passages because this goes over several chapters, is that God takes that stick, the thing that Moses has been pushing sheep around with, and uses it for the kingdom of God to do just amazing things, amazing miracles, the most mundane thing. The thing that Moses used for his work every day for 40 years, God uses that. And just amazing things happen because Moses had a stick. Now, we heard last week as Matt was talking that we are a sent people, that we are called to go, that it's not just about um, sitting in church. Church is not just a place that we come to. Church is a thing that we are. Is something that we are together. You are the church together. Can I get you to agree with that? Okay, good, okay. Now, see, as a lawyer, that means that you have just accepted my contract, okay? <laughs> so you're stuck, all right? Um, and Matt talked about the, what we call the Great Commission, where Jesus said to his disciples, I'm sending you out. I like to call it the Great Go Mission, where Jesus came to his disciples and said, okay, I've given you everything that you need, all authority 
in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's huge that God would say that. First of all, that he's saying go. He doesn't say gather people in, make them come to your church building. He's actually actively saying go, I'm sending you out. Your focus is not to be inward so much as it is to be outward. That's the direction that we need to look. We need to look outside for, for this church and I'm so encouraged to watch Matt and Tyler and the other staff, they're focused on how do we reach out to Burbank? How do we reach out to LA? They're always asking that question. And I encourage you guys to be thinking that as well. That it is not about how can we get more people in here, although that's great. It's about how can we reach more people out there and getting really creative with that. It is not about what is going on inside the walls of the church or inside the walls of the Colony Theater. It is about what can happen out there. And to me, that's pretty exciting because a whole lot of stuff can happen out there. Now, you may be thinking, I'm not a pastor. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not a missionary. I'm just a lawyer. Or I am just an actor. Or just a filmmaker. Or just a hairstylist, or just a stockbroker, or whatever it is that you do every day. And it's very easy to think that way. I want to talk about how your marketplace is your mission field. That where you are working is where God has called you into ministry. And I want to do that by talking about beer. It's not something we talk about in church all that much. We're not going to talk about the theology of beer. I don't have one. But we're going to talk in particular about a guy who created a very specific beer, a beer maker by the name of Arthur Guinness. Now, Arthur Guinness was not the guy who played Obi-Wan Kenobi, okay? That's a different <laughs> Guinness altogether, okay? Arthur Guinness lived in Dublin, Ireland, around the mid to late 1700s, and he had a whole bunch of kids and grandkids that came after him, and he was a beer maker. He made beer for a living. Now, Dublin at that time was not a nice place at all. Let me tell you a little bit about Dublin at that point in time. Uh, Mr. Guinness was stepping into brew making or beer making just as the gin craze was decimating much of his world. Now, the gin craze, uh, hard liquor was coming in. And uh, Parliament had forbidden the importation of hard liquor. So the people of Ireland and England decided they were going to start making their own. If we can't import it, we're going to make it on our own. And so one in every six houses in London was a gin shop. That's a lot of gin consumed to the point of intoxication by just about every adult in Ireland and England. And this changed the culture for the worse. It made people lazy. It made them mean. It made them wild. 
and cruel. It, um, people were wandering around intoxicated. They were inhuman to a large extent. Murder, suicide, hunger, depravity prevailed. Grinding poverty and vicious crime throughout Ireland and England. And this created a culture in which they all had to live. Because, and this is something I want to drive home today, you will live from whatever world you are most focused on. If you are focused on this world that we're in, that is the world that you're going to live in, and you are going to reinforce that culture. On the other side, on the other hand, if you are living from a culture of heaven or the culture of the kingdom of God, because that's what you're focused on, you are bringing that culture wherever you go because it's a part of who you are. Now, you've probably met some people from other countries, and they have a very different culture, and they inject it into wherever they are. And it's nice to think that as people here in the United States that we have our own culture. But the question is, what do we do? How do we begin to inject the culture of the kingdom of God into the place that we have here? And what would that look like? The culture you live from creates the culture you live in. The culture you live from creates the culture that you live in. Then uh, with Mr. Guinness, a terrible blight came. The famous or infamous Irish potato famine hit, and crop after crop of potatoes failed because of blight, and thousands and thousands of people began to starve, and that was largely because at least one-third of the population of Ireland depended solely on the potato for food, and people began to die. There were stories of corpses being found in the alleyways, tales of mothers killing and even eating their own children. And people began to try to find a way, we've got to find a way to get out of Ireland. And so the best way to get out of Ireland was to go through Dublin. So more and more people began to crowd into Dublin so they could take ships and get out. Unfortunately, there weren't enough ships to get people out. And so now you have this overcrowding problem. People crowding there and hunger and disease rose. Smallpox, measles, scarlet fever, typhus, whooping cough, diarrhea, dysentery, typhoid fever, tuberculosis gave Dublin the highest death rate of any city in Europe. And this became the culture of Dublin. Disease led to poverty and poverty led to more disease because you will live from whatever world you are most focused on. The culture you live from determines and creates the culture you live in. It gets worse. Almost 40% of all families in Dublin at that point were living in single-room dwellings. So wherever you live and you think it's terrible, it was worse in Dublin. One historical record showed 11 families living in a single-family dwelling. Houses so impregnated with filth, said one historian, and so utterly rotten that they should be, should be regarded as unfit for human habitation. Rooms so vile that a visiting doctor could not even enter it. This was the culture they, they had, and it came down hardest on women and children. Widows and orphans, as men began to leave to try to find work in other places, they'd leave their wives and children behind, and it got worse. 
I know it sounds bad already, but it got worse. So then the water supply becomes tainted. Because what was happening is that families were routinely dumping their waste and sewage into the main water source, the River Lyfe. And I know that's how you say it because I'm Irish. <laughs> and drew their water from the exact same place. So they're putting the waste in and drinking from it as well. And I don't know if you know this, but that is not a good thing to do. It causes disease. And so the water was unsafe to drink. And as a result, what did they turn to? More alcohol. So they turn to the alcohol. They're drinking more and more alcohol. Um, alcoholism and alcohol abuse ran rampant. People were spending what little money they had on alcohol and losing their jobs, which led to more poverty and more disease. And now you have a vicious cycle that creates a culture of want and need and depravity. Not a good place to live. In fact, one historian named Dublin the city of the damned. Sounds like something from a movie, but it was true. Okay, Dublin was called the city of the damned. Now along comes this guy named Arthur Guinness. Now Arthur, um, or we can call him Art or Artie or whatever you want to call him. Uh, he also had a son named Arthur, so they called him the second Arthur. That was his nickname. Um, Arthur was a very devout Christian, loved the Lord, and he was a businessman. He was not somebody who was in the clergy, he was not a pastor, he was not an evangelist, but he did have a contemporary back then by the name of John Wesley, who was a great Christian theologian and evangelist. And John Wesley was of a firm opinion and spoke many times at Arthur Guinness's church saying that your faith, your Christianity, isn't just about what you believe. Because you can believe all sorts of things. You can agree with stuff, but that's not the same thing as faith. You can say, I believe in Christianity or I believe in the Christian faith, but that does not make you a Christian. Because your faith isn't just about what you believe. It's about how your faith plays out in the world around you. It's about caring for the people around you to the greater glory of God. And that is what John Wesley said over and over and over again. And you can imagine as he's preaching in Arthur Guinness's church and he's, he's leveling this charge, what are you going to do for the glory of God? What are you going to do for the people around you here in Dublin, the city of the damned? What are you going to do? And Arthur Guinness is sitting there listening and he's thinking, all I've got is this brewery. All I do is make beer. What can I do for God? I just have beer. So he started to think about it. And he started thinking, you know what? I'm going to create a beer that is good for the people of Dublin. His beer, in the process of brewing it, it killed all the germs in the water. So first of all, he's taking care of the water problem. And he made it safe to drink. And his beer also contained all sorts of vitamins. In fact, it was so nutritious that people could eat it or drink it as a meal. Third, his beer was so heavy that you couldn't drink enough to get drunk off of it. So you could drink a beer, get all the nutrients you needed, but not get drunk. So alcohol abuse began to go down. 
And the other thing he started thinking is, well, it's not enough to just provide this to the people of Dublin. I think what we also need to do is I've got this company where thousands of people work for me. What I'm going to do is make sure that they are going to have all the nutrition that they need. And so he guaranteed each of his workers two pints of Guinness beer every day. And this became company policy. And for the next hundred years, Arthur and the second Arthur and all the kids that came after him decided to make their workplace their ministry. They decided this is where God has called us to work now. He has not called us to be pastors. He has not, although some of the Guinnesses did become pastors over time. But this group was like, he's, he's not called us to be pastors. He's not called us to be evangelists. He's not called us to be missionaries. So what can we do with our business to actually minister to the people who work here? Let me read you some of the stuff that he and his kids did. They created an on-site medical clinic for all the workers and families with two doctors, nurses, pharmacists, dentists, physical therapists, and not only the workers could use it, but their wives and children could use it for free as well. If you were uh, the wife of somebody who had died, you could continue to use it. So a widow, a pensioner could still use it. They created a pension plan that retirees received without having to make contributions of their own. And the widows received benefits as well. They paid a majority of any funeral expenses. Now, for the Irish, funerals are a really big deal. And people were going into debt to have these lavish funerals. It's kind of like what weddings are now here. They did the same thing with funerals, and they'd go into debt. And so what they decided, because it was a cultural thing there in Ireland, for funerals that Guinness was going to pay for all the funeral expenses. Um, they created a savings bank through their company, through which their workers could borrow so they could purchase houses. They had competitions in which they would teach people how to do domestic things, such as sewing, cooking, decorating, gardening, and hat making, which was a big deal, I guess, back then. They had concerts, lectures for the people to attend for free. They sponsored guilds and associations. They had clubs for raising dogs or raising pigeons and poultry or for raising gardens. They had an athletic union where all the athletes from their group could focus on how to be physically healthy. So they sponsored competitions in cricket and football, cycling, boxing, swimming, and apparently tug of war from what I've read because that's a big deal in Ireland. They paid all of their employees between the age of 14 and 30 to get education. They were felt responsible for providing the education for their own people, and if a worker was qualified, they would even get them onto college and pay for their college education, any advanced education if they were qualified. They had music rooms, they had lending libraries, they had places where men could just sit and think, which is kind of a an important thing when you are living in the city of the damned to have a place to just be quiet because you know just living in L.A. you could probably use a place to be quiet. They uh, had classes for all sorts of things. They uh, built a group of homes that is still standing here and the people uh, of Ireland 
uh, have examined these. They're called the Liberty Row Houses. These were houses for the employees. They were providing housing because remember, all the ones before had just been so bad. So Guinness puts together these houses and they were done so, with so much excellence that the people now in Ireland say these houses will still be standing 100 years from now. See, Arthur Guinness and his sons were Christians, not just by belief, not just by doctrine, but by faith. They were focused on the kingdom of heaven, and as a result of being citizens of the kingdom of heaven, they were changing the culture around them. They were changing the world around them through their work. They didn't become pastors. They didn't become clergy members. They were business people whose marketplace was their mission field. They took the great Go Mission, the great commission, seriously and changed the world around them by addressing the needs of the people at work. I want to ask you, what would that look like if we did that now? Think about where you work. Or if you're a stay-at-home parent, think about that. What would that look like if we would take the culture of the kingdom of heaven and begin to insert that into the place that we work? Now, my background is as a lawyer, and I first began to understand this concept. There were only two Christians at my law firm in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, it was a very large firm, but there were only two Christians there. Um, John was one of the partners. He was also an elder at my church, and he would come get me on Tuesday mornings, and we'd go up to his office, and we'd close the door, and we'd just pray for our firm. We'd just, Lord, bless this partner. Lord, bless uh, this secretary. Lord, help us create a culture here. And we began to, to laugh about it because John, uh, there, was, there was a two-floor building. John was on the second floor. My office was on the first floor. And I'd, we'd laugh and we'd be like, John, you're the pastor of the second floor. And Shun Lee's the pastor of the first floor. And we thought that was so funny. <laughs> Until one day we realized that, John, you really are the pastor of the second floor. And Shun Lee is the pastor of the first floor. And we began to embrace that as our identity. Now we were not just lawyers, we were actually ministers at our law firm. And the minute that we did that, we began to see some really interesting things happen. People began to come to my door, like legal secretaries or whoever, and they'd knock on the door and they'd say, Shunli, and they'd be like in tears. And I'd be like, they'd say, can we talk? I've got some things that are bothering me. Now I wasn't going around saying, hey everybody, I'm the pastor of the first floor, come see me for all your spiritual needs. I didn't have to do that. I just embraced it in my own heart. This is who I am, and taking responsibility for the, for the spiritual life of my firm and particularly the first floor. And so these people began to come, and they'd just be crying, and they'd sit down, and they have all these questions for me about their spiritual faith and their spiritual walk. And I'm like, what is going on here? I didn't ask for this. I'm trying to bill hours. And the Lord said, well, that might be a problem right there, first of all. But secondly, the idea of embracing your workplace as your ministry changes you and your workplace. Because then all of a sudden, you are sent into your workplace to do things for the kingdom of God. You are taking the kingdom of heaven, the culture of heaven, and you are injecting it into your workplace everywhere you go. See, we have a hierarchy here 
in the church, not just here, but in the Western church, in Western Christianity. And this is kind of how that hierarchy goes. Uh, it's a hierarchy of what is most important in the kingdom of God. You have at the top, the most important are pastors. Right below that are missionaries. Right below that we have evangelists, because they're a little kooky, but we know that they're doing kingdom work, so it's okay. After that, we have youth workers, if they're good, and church workers, then vocational ministry workers, then we have stay-at-home parents, below that we have plumbers, (laughs) down below that we have CEOs and executives, and way down at the bottom, lawyers. (laughs) And that's the way we think, because we have adopted this Greek way of thinking called dualism. Now, dualism basically separates what is sacred and what is secular and keeps them apart. Because the Greeks believed that you had all the Greek gods up here on this mountain, and you had all the people down here below living their lives, and we keep the two separate. And we've embraced that as the Christian church here in the United States, because you hear talk of, oh yes, that was a sacred or a Christian movie or a Christian song, and then we have secular stuff, and they're different. We keep them apart. And then we have jobs that are sacred, and then we have jobs that are secular, and we keep them apart, and they're not equally important. This is a false dichotomy. This is a false separation, and it splits the sacred and the secular. Anything that is spiritual is kept apart from everything else. And as a result, we think if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to obey God, then you have to leave your job and become a pastor, a missionary, or maybe an evangelist, and that all other vocations are of lesser importance. And this creates an us-versus-them mentality. The pastors and the missionaries do the God stuff, and the rest of us sit in the pews and listen to them, and when we're done with church, On Sunday, we leave and we go back to our quote-unquote secular work that has very little to do with God. Now, the problem with this mindset is that, according to one study, only 4% of Christians are called to be pastors, missionaries, or evangelists. That means that 96% of Christians are called to do something totally different. And if you really think about it from a logical point of view, that can't be the way that God wanted it. That can't be the way God intended it, right? He did not intend for 4% of the Christians to do all of God's work and then the rest of us do all the other stuff because he's called all of us to be kingdom ambassadors. We are all sent, right? Right, Shunley, of course you're right. Okay. (laughs) And actually, the the way that the Jewish community thought about spirituality is you didn't separate the two. Dualism wasn't a thing. Actually, what it was is that everything was spiritual. The true Jewish way of thinking was that the spiritual was a part of everything we do. That everything has a spiritual component to it. Whether that be rest... Like, for example, I had a pastor who once said, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. And I took that to heart. (laughs) And I encourage you to do the same. But not right now, okay? Relationships, it has a spiritual nature to that. 
Romance as a spiritual relationship. Sex, music, entertainment, art, humor, family, beauty, truth, goodness. They all have a spiritual component to it. And our job as Christians is to identify that, what that is and to begin to live that out in everything that we do. And that means work as well. Now, some of you got up this morning, or maybe you're thinking it right now because you're not listening to me. You're, you got up and you started thinking, oh, I can't believe it's Sunday already. Ah, I gotta go to work tomorrow. It's just like the worst thing, you know? And we forget that work is spiritual. It is our ministry. It is the thing for us to do. Back in the 1500s, there were a couple guys named Luther and Calvin. Um, Luther was Martin Luther, not Lex Luther. And John Calvin, not Calvin Klein or Calvin and Hobbes. And they insisted that people were called by God not just to offices in the church, but to every kind of labor and trade. And that none of them were less holy than being a priest or an evangelist or a pastor. And that while God did not want people to be worldly in their character, he nevertheless called them, every single person, to be active in the world in order to fulfill his will. In other words, the Christian shopkeeper or the candlestick maker, or the actor, or lawyer, or doctor, or whoever it is, served God while exercising his trade in the manner that Jesus would do the same thing, with skill, with excellence, morality, integrity, and with joy. And I want us to think about this. Your work is spiritual. Your work and your workplace is your ministry. That is what you are called to. That is why you are here. That is why you are doing what you do. God puts you in that place. It's not only your ministry to other people, but it is also your ministry to God. How you do it is how you worship, and we'll talk about that a little bit. How do I know this? Okay, so I'm going to make an argument as a lawyer to you as to why this is true, how this actually has a biblical background. First of all, and we talked about this last week, Matt talked about this, how um, God called a bunch of ragtag disciples who were, well, they weren't, they weren't ministers. They were not the people who uh, had it all going for them in terms of ministry. God called shepherds and politicians and farmers and judges and servants, even slaves, tent makers, academics, fishermen, and most importantly, he called a carpenter to do his will. Jesus was a business person, first and foremost. He was also an artist as a business person. He was working with wood for the benefit of other people. 122 of Jesus' 132 public appearances in the Bible were in the marketplace. That means little of what is recorded in the Bible happened within the walls of the religious establishment. 45 of the 52 parables that he told had a marketplace or workplace context. 39 of the 40 recorded miracles he performed were done in the marketplace. 54% of his reported teaching ministry rose out of issues posed by other people in the scope 
of daily life experience. And this goes on and on and on. And the, the big thing is that the Hebrew word for um, work is avoda. It's the root word for both work and worship. What you do is how you worship God. Whatever your work is, is how you worship God. Billy Graham said, I believe that one of the next great moves of God is going to be through workers in the workplace. Think about that for a second. It's a paradigm shift. And if you'll embrace that paradigm shift, it's going to do three things for you. First, it's going to change how you do work. It's going to change your attitude. You're not going to be thinking about, oh, I can't believe I have to go into work. Now it's suddenly an opportunity to advance the kingdom of God wherever God has called you. It's going to change how you treat your employees or how you treat your bosses or your coworkers. Suddenly you're not thinking about how can I get past this person? Now you're thinking about how can I serve them? Because in the Bible it says to do everything as unto the Lord that we're supposed to do these things for the Lord as if the Lord told us to do it. If Jesus came down and said, I want you to do whatever it is that you do for a living, if he, and he was standing right there in the room, how would that change how you approach doing your work? Would it be different? Would it look different? Would your attitude be different? Secondly, it changes why we do work. Now, some of us think, the only reason I work is so I can get money to pay the bills. But see, that's not the culture of the kingdom of God. See, the culture of the kingdom of God, money is not an issue. I mean, we need it here. We use it here. I used to be so excited about going to heaven because it talks about how the streets are made of gold there. Why do you think they talk about that? Because in, the, in heaven, gold is so plentiful that it has zero value. They make streets out of it. So if we can begin to live from that concept that it's really not about the money and it's not about self-fulfillment, it's not about all these things, I'm doing this as a ministry, I'm doing it for other people, that changes why we do work. And it may change where you do work. You may decide that, okay, well, um, God is calling me to this other thing. So when I was a lawyer, I was sitting there and every day, every morning I was having my quiet time. I'd be like, Lord, take me where you want me to be, where I can do the most good for your kingdom based on what you have put inside of me. And about halfway through my law career, the Lord showed up and started talking. And he said, I'm sending you to Hollywood and you're going to be an actor and a writer and a filmmaker. And you're gonna start this thing called The Greenhouse and you're gonna mentor young artists. And I'm like, okay, that sounds good. I have no clue what that means. But God began to change where I was working. And over the next two and a half years, he actually brought me here as a minister to Hollywood because my paradigm had shifted. And I wanna ask you, what does your workplace look like if your paradigm shifts as well? What would it look like if you lived out what you say you believe in the workplace, in government, academia, the arts? God changed the entire culture with 12 people. We've got more than 12 people here. If we would begin to do that with just the people in here, we would change the entire world. The entire world. Are you up for that? Is that something that 
we can do as a church? Is that something that we can embody? Because you will live from whatever world you are most focused on. If you are focused on the day-to-day of this world, that's the world you're going to live from. If you are focused instead on the kingdom of heaven and that culture, well, the culture you live from creates the culture you live in. And God can do something greater through you in your work than you can ever do on your own. I want to tell you a quick story. Um, the greenhouse had started, and, and people were beginning to recognize some of the things we were doing in the entertainment industry. And we had, uh, I had somebody call me. Uh, I'm going to call her Melinda, because that was her name. And she, and, uh, she called me up, and she said, Shunley, would you please come to where I work? I work at Paramount Studios, and could you just come and have lunch with me? And I said, absolutely, a- absolutely. And um, she had the most boring job I've ever heard of in my life. She was the secretary for the sign department at Paramount Studios. So every day she sat there and took orders on how to make signs. So we sat down for lunch and she said, um, Chun-Li, here's the problem. I came out here to be an actress. I love to act. It's everything I think about. And here I am stuck in this little back office making signs for people. And what do I do? And I said, you know, I wish I had a job to give you as an actor right now, and I don't have that for you right now. I can keep my eyes open, but I don't have that for you right now. But what I can do is I can commission you as a pastor of Paramount Studios. And she gave me this look. She's like, do I have to do anything? I said, no, you don't have to do anything, but I'm going to... I'm going to pray for you, and we're going to finish up our salads here, and then we're going to go around the corner. I'm just going to put my hand on your shoulder. And that's what we did. We went around the corner. I put my hand on her shoulder, and I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I commission you as a pastor of Paramount Studios because you're going to be able to meet people and run into people at Paramount that I'm never going to get to see. And I'd say the same thing about all of you guys. You're going to meet people every day that I'll never get to see. Matt will never get to see. Tyler won't get to see, but you will, because God put them in front of you. So I said this over Melinda. She gave me another very strange look, and then she left, and I left. I thought, well, that didn't work. And the next day, I get a phone call from Melinda. I pick up the phone, and she, I say, hello, who's this? Oh, this is Melinda. I said, Melinda, how you doing today? She said, Shunley. I am the pastor of Paramount Studios. It changed the way that she did work. It changed the way that she approached it, the attitude that she had. It changed the why of what she was doing. And she went on to find other work, and she's done some great acting. She's done some amazing things as an actress. That wasn't the point. The point was that she had to embrace the fact that her workplace was her mission field. It was her ministry. Think about where you work. Everybody close your eyes for just a second. I don't want to make this weird or anything, but just close your eyes because then we can tune out all the extraneous stuff. I want you to just think about where you work right now. Picture it in your head. Maybe you're an actor, maybe you are a writer, maybe you are a lawyer or a doctor or whatever it is that you do. Maybe you are a stay-at-home parent. 
There are all sorts of things and they are all holy. Every single one of them are holy. Think about that place for a second. Think about how you fit into it and how God brought you there over time. Maybe you don't enjoy it right now. Maybe you do. Maybe it's your dream job. Maybe it's the thing that's getting you by. Think about that for a second. And then I'm going to ask you the same question. How many of you are vocational ministers? Raise your hand if you are a vocational minister. That is all of you. Anyone who claims to be part of the kingdom of God, who carries the culture of the kingdom of heaven inside of them, you are a vocational minister. And so you ask yourself, well, how can that be? What am I gonna do? All I've got is this little job. All I am is a barista at Starbucks, or all I am is a lawyer, or all I am is an actor who's just trying to make it day by day. How can I be sent? How can I be used by God? And to that, I would say, well, what do you have in your hand? What is it that you have in your hand right now? Because God wants to take that and use it for his purposes. Amen? Will you commit to that? Is that worthwhile? I say it is. I say that not only will this church be changed, but Burbank will be changed and LA will be changed. You will begin to see the needs of your culture, just like Arthur Guinness did, and you will begin to address them because when you look at your ministry, when you look at your mission field, you automatically, naturally begin to find the problems that you can solve. And then you begin to use your creativity to solve those things. You can do that today. You can start today. Immediately, when you walk out the doors of the Colony Theater, you can begin to ask yourself, how can I make a difference? And you can begin to get very creative. Let's pray real quick. Actually, if you don't mind, if you just stand real quickly, if you can. Some of you can't. Lord, I want to commission the people in this room as ministers of the gospel where they work. I want to commission them in the name of Jesus Christ as missionaries to where they work. In the name of Jesus, you are now pastors and preachers and evangelists, and you can go to where you work and inject the culture of the kingdom of heaven. Lord, help us to understand that paradigm. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.